Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's Second Golden Age, New German cinema, Third World cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. Chapter 7 in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, Midnight Cowboy and Censorship. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Midnight Cowboy was a novel published in 1965 and written by James Leo Herlihy. Celebrated for being the story of a Texan who goes to New York City to make his way in the big city, the movie was translated into a movie by Waldo Salt, called Midnight Cowboy and released in 1969 under the direction of John Schlesinger. Midnight Cowboy is famous for being an early combination of a buddy film that is off-kilter. Dustin Hoffman stars as Ratso, that is Enrico Salvatore Rizzo, against John Voight's Joe Buck. Joe is the Texan who pulls stakes and moves to the big city of New York where he wishes to make it as a hustler. One of the things he misunderstands about the role of a hustler is that it's not something for the heteronormative boy like he wishes to be. Midnight Cowboy is famous for being the only movie in history to be released with an X rating that then went on to earn the Best Picture Award at the Academy Awards in early 1970. What's important to realize about the movie is that, yes, indeed, it is an X-rated movie before the R rating was extended to overlap with the objectionable materials, and the X rating itself, which was never copyrighted by the MPAA, became roped off by another piece of the audiovisual industry. An important consideration as we dive into censorship practices, Midnight Cowboy and its impact in the late 1960s in global cinema is also recognizing that Midnight Cowboy is a hugely experimental movie. Perhaps most of all, the movie's experiment centers on a male friendship. But let's roll back just a moment. First, the movie is about impoverished people. It is about a kind of anti-hero. That's Joe and his best friend, Ratso. They're destitute, they're struggling, and we look at their lives through the underbelly of New York City, a city normally lifted up as a fantasy playground, whereas in this movie, we see the complete depredations of the urban core that have fallen into total disrepair. 
We also watch as the movie experiments with how it can display parts of human consciousness and experience. One example. There's a sequence deep into the movie when Ratso has undertaken the responsibility of managing Joe's career as a hustler appealing to wealthy women. They go to a party, a party that's sort of like Andy Warhol's factory, late one night where there's plenty to eat, plenty to drink, and drugs all around with various groups of people performing all kinds of different art artifacts while also mingling and sex making. We watch then as Joe gets high, perhaps for the very first time, and the movie's imagery undertakes showing us what it may look like and how it may feel with lots of jump cuts, with lots of out-of-focus details, with much color, quick movements, and edits that carve up both time and space to portray the altered reality Joe is living through. But one of the more important details of this movie is the way that it lingers over impoverishment, in New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. They're laughing at you on the street. Ain't nobody laughing at me on the street. Hang your back, I seen them laughing at you, fella. Oh, what the hell do you know about women anyway? When's the last time you scored, boy? What's the matter? I only talk about a confession. We're not talking about me now. Well, when's the last time you've been to confession? It's between me and my confessor. And I'll tell you another thing. Frankly, you're beginning to smell. And for a stud in New York, that's a handicap. Oh, don't talk to me about clean. I ain't never seen you change your underwear once the whole time I've been here in New York. And that's pretty peculiar behavior. I don't have to do that kind of thing in public. I ain't got no need to expose myself. No, I bet you don't. I bet you ain't never even been laid. How about that? And you're gonna tell me what appeals women. I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every Jackie on 42nd Street. All the while, we watch as Ratso walks behind Joe as they traipse across New York City, having misadventures, and we listen to the fact that Ratso is increasingly racked by illness, a cough that won't go away, a broken body with a twisted ankle. By the movie's end, Joe has had enough of being a hustler in New York City's mean streets and decides that he and Ratso ought to move south down into Florida where there will be seasonal year-round warmth and he can take up his career as a dishwasher once again and they can make a life together. The trouble is Ratso is so sick he can't even walk anymore and Joe allows himself to be picked up by an older gay man. Joe is disgusted by this man, beats him, steals all of his money, and we're left to believe that, in fact, Joe may have killed him to purchase bus here. Hey, what's the matter? I'm wet. You're, you're, you're what? I wet my pants. The seat's all wet. Oh, well, Ellie, you know, you're just crying over the damn thing. Here I am going to Florida. My leg hurts. My butt hurts. My chest hurts. My face hurts. And like that ain't enough, I gotta pee all over myself. <laughs> That's funny. I'm falling apart here. You just, you know what happened? You just took a little rest up. Wasn't on the schedule. Spoiler. Ratso dies, leaving Joe alone in Florida to remake his life. Not only are we watching male-on-male -male sex being expressed. We're also watching male-female sex being expressed. We're watching people smoke, and we watch a lot of drug use. That in particular leads to the next part that makes this movie censorable, but also an interesting experimental movie. 
Throughout Midnight Cowboy, the forward progress of watching Joe's flight is interrupted by flashbacks to Joe's life. The issue is, Joe grew up in a pack of boys who were miscreants, and at one point these boys discovered a girl in their midst who was sexually active and willing to service these boys for fun. We learn that Joe and this young woman, Annie Jennifer Salt, had a romantic relationship. We also know that one pivotal night, while they were making love, they were interrupted by that band of boys who peeled apart Annie and Joe and then assaulted and raped each of them. This scarred Joe because he was the victim of sexual assault and rape, and this broke the consciousness and psychology of Annie, who was taken literally away to a mental institution, claiming to the investigators that Joe was the only one. This is misunderstood because Joe was the only one, her true love, but this is called out as he was the assailant who destroyed her. We jump forward in time through this flashback structure and learn that Joe was enlisted, I think, in the army and returns home some years after his tour is done. This, remember, overlaps with the early dawning of the Vietnam War era. And so he returns home to realize that Annie is in the wind, his family is gone, and he is now a branded person, a sexual criminal, a veteran to try to clean the cloth, but with no particular skills. And on top of that, other flashbacks teach us that Joe seems to have been the out-of-wedlock child of a bit of a floozy of a mother who dropped him off when he was a boy at his grandmother's house. And his grandmother had various relationships across time. One in particular seemed to stick around, one man that Joe modeled himself on, and that's how Joe eventually becomes a cowboy. Not because he ever worked animals or did animal husbandry, but because he idealized this boyfriend of his grandmother as the ideal form masculinity ought to take. Pile all of this together, and we realize we're looking at the portrait of somebody who is psychosexually broken by early life experiences and then enters the sex trade but doesn't do well, while he accidentally meets a young man who is impoverished and poor and closeted that gloms onto him, and that's Ratso. So between them, there's always this wrestling match question. Is this a male romance or is this a friendship? In the years since Midnight Cowboy was released, it has been largely celebrated as a cutting-edge work that extended the envelope of what we could look at on a screen. There are a couple of treasured moments in the movie that I'd like you to think about, and that is each of our two main characters, both Joe and Ratso, have moments where they flash forward into what their life in Florida might be like. Their friendship seems to have bloomed into close companionship, which we can now read from the 21st century as a kind of marriage. We look at how Ratso views his future as being an able-bodied person, not hobbled, clean, slick, the center of a social circumstance where his actions are celebrated by others and coveted by his bestie, Joe. And Joe views the same circumstance as a place where he can find affection with elder women who have money to fund a really nice lifestyle, shirts off under the sun, oiled skin, looking magnificent and young. 
Of course, those flash-forwards, those fantasy sequences, interspersed with the flashbacks to sexual assault and the terrible childhood that Joe endured, leaves Midnight Cowboy as a document of pain. Now, censorship. A quick primer. By the time movies were firmly established as perhaps the most dominant form of public entertainment in the United States, it was also understood by tastemakers, politicians, and moral authorities in society that movies were influencing people's behavior, and people who made movies were becoming celebrities because they made movies, and so their private behaviors were beginning to be known through gossip rags, tabloids, newspaper articles, and the like. So, by the 1920s, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, MPPDA, which was eventually evolved into the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, and finally today is known as the Motion Picture Association, organized a particular set of guidelines that the film industry in the United States was meant to follow. There weren't any teeth to this set of guidelines, so motion picture operators could opt into and follow the guidelines or avoid them altogether. This resulted in a series of movies from the late 1920s through the early 1930s, the early sound era, when a lot of very risque, kind of gnarly and interesting stuff happened. The MPPDA strengthened itself by establishing the Hayes Code. This code was important because it was a way to measure the quality of scripts moving through the production process, to judge resulting movies, and to give these movies stamps of approval that they met the Production Code Administration's necessary values of what a movie could convey. If a movie did not have this code of approval, it couldn't be shown in the dominant theaters in the big cities across the United States, and the filmmaker would be fined, and this group had teeth. They would enforce these fines and not allow movies to be distributed. Consequently, the studios complied with this system and then worked across the next several decades trying to figure out the limits of this system when new test cases butted up against the envelope of what was then considered permissible. A silly example. Early on in the code administration, married people were not allowed to sit on or lie in a bed together at the very same time. Many filmmakers figured out ways to get around that with symbolism, with coded characterizations, by the time we reach the 1960s and the baby boom generation starts to reach maturity, we realize that the old code administration is so out of favor with such things as European imports exploring sensuality in ways that American movies were not keeping up with, with the kinds of violence people were daily exposed to on news, especially news that was beginning to focus on the American war in Vietnam, that we had to see some way for American movies to mature. So, by the late 1960s, rather than defining a set of rules movies must comply with to receive a seal of approval and be released to theaters, there was established a ratings system where you, the moviegoer, were endowed with knowledge that the movie you're stepping into is likely to be most appropriate for this age and kind of person. Those initial ratings then allow you to police your own habits. If you didn't want any objectionable material, you would go to the G-rated for a general audience. If you wanted something that was a bit rougher or more adult in orientation, you would go to something that was a bit higher rated. This rating system has had many iterations and changes from when it was first used ritualistically in 1968. So, 
When Midnight Cowboy shows up in 1969, it is an unusual beast and is rated X because it's perceived as being so sexy, so perverse, so strange, so profane, so experimental and weird, it really doesn't fit into the more general categories. The first ratings were G, M for Mature, R for Restricted, and X. It was quickly understood that M for Mature was not perfectly clear, and so a GP rating was established, but that wasn't clear, and so parental guidance was eventually established. Yet, by the time we reached the 1980s, the PG and R distinction was less clear to a great many moviegoers, so there became a PG-13 rating, and then later on, there was a further problem with considering R-rated movies that are very, very violent, and movies that are sometimes sexy and extremely sensual, but in a way that is not pornographic. And so we eventually get the NC-17. you pile all of this together in the consideration of Midnight Cowboy, and what you realize is the movie industry moved from worrying about outside restriction from the government, saying this is what a movie can be, turning itself inside out by self-regulation through a rating system, whereupon a movie this strange, experimental, weird, profane, sexy, you name your adjective, could be released because it was presented directly for and advertised to adults, and adults only. That created a sea change in how movies would be presented from that point forward in America because it was clear that there are adults who want risque material, who want adult-oriented material, who can tolerate complexity and can watch movies explore aspects of society that are sometimes dangerous or not very well understood and will turn out in droves. Because remember, Midnight Cowboy was massively successful. Against a rather thin budget of $3.5 million, it earned more than $40 million in North America alone and established the idea that taking a risk and hitting for the deep fences on something that would only appeal to a small sliver of a small sliver of the population, adults interested in a certain kind of story, could succeed if that kind of a story spoke to certain issues people were curious about, fearful of, or otherwise wished to enjoy as part of an evening's entertainment. And at the same time, we have an old guard of traditionalists still vibrant and in control of their parts of the American experience, pushing back against that sense of experimentation, of wilding and saying, things should be more tame, more traditional. And we watch that happen inside of the text of Midnight Cowboy. Altogether, then, Midnight Cowboy is not an optimistic movie. It is a kind of a horror show of how a society can grind out some young people and cause them to fail because it has no place for them. But the most popular movie in America that very same year was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, starring the golden boy Robert Redford and that old silver fox with blue eyes Paul Newman. The pair of them at peak stardom demonstrating a return to an old style of genre filmmaking in the Western, but dressing it for that same youth audience that was turning out for things like Midnight Cowboy and twisting those old conventions around tragic outcomes.
Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.